Uh, welcome, guys. My name is Josh. Uh, welcome to Resonate. I'm the pastor here. Um, can we thank Omid? Omid is going to be gone for a couple weeks, and we're going to miss him. Miss his shiny presence. Um, but uh, he will be back. So uh, speaking of back, uh, September 2nd, mark that on your calendar. You can whip out your phone right now, do whatever you'd like. Uh, we're going to do a kind of welcome back party. Typically in churches, and more so in our church, summer is kind of like this frenzy time where, like we had, there were weddings, there have been babies, there's been just a ton of stuff going on. Uh, there's also travel. Uh, so, like, in the fall is kind of when we regroup and we go, like, oh, yeah, we're still a church. <laughs> so, September 2nd, um, we're going to be throwing kind of a comeback party. And then in October, we're actually going to celebrate our two-year uh, anniversary in this iteration of Resonate. So, we'll do that as well. So, there's lots of celebration to come, lots of fun stuff. But um, September 2nd, invite your friends, invite your family, invite strangers, invite people off the street. I don't care. We just want to fill this place and love on people. We'll have food. Um, Sean Blackwood, who is our uh, head, of, head of our board, will be barbecuing. Um, he's also a freshly new papa, Sean Blackwood. So they just had their baby last week. Um, so I'm sure he'll have nothing better to do than to barbecue for us. Uh, <laughs> and totally cool. Um, but no, so I'm super excited. This is uh, the second week in our brand new series. And we're doing a series called Nothing's Off the Table. And basically what that's all about, and you can listen to the podcast because there's two uh, sermons that I did that just ranted on table fellowship, like for nothing else. Um, so listen to those if you want to get caught up on that. But basically, the like quick catch up is that Jesus spent a lot of time just at the table. And part of the reason we're having breakfast burritos this morning, we want to hang out, is we want to model that sort of like leadership and that sort of ministry. Basically, Jesus didn't do a lot of sermons in temples. Like he did some. But the stuff that we quote in here the most and the stuff that you're going to hear in churches and the stuff that you're going to resonate with the most, for lack of a better term, I should have like a bell whenever I say that, but the stuff that you're going to actually go, ooh, that's some good stuff, that all happened as Jesus was reclining, and the Bible makes that very specific, reclining at a table. A table like brunch or like dinner or lunch. This is, that's the spaces that he chose to actually get his message across. And the reason that he did that was very symbolic and very meaningful and very purposeful and actually very practical. Basically, if you were at a table, you were safe. If you're at a table with someone in that ancient time, you walked in through the door, and we'll talk about what hosting meant and hospitality because that's going to be a huge thing that we're going to talk about this morning. But if you walked in the door in an ancient society, it was called desert hospitality, which basically meant that you were in a desert, you were in a land that could kill you. So if you were walking through and you stumbled upon a neighbor, you would knock on the door and they would graciously enter you in and they would give you bread, they would wash your feet, they would, they would treat you like family. And then more than that, it was like duty, honor bound that you would take like the best stuff that you had and cook a feast. So I'm talking like the best bottle of wine, the best thing in the fridge that you have, the best, like for some of us, like myself, the best number you can call to order in food. That was the thing <laughs> that you would do when a guest came into your home. Because a guest, as soon as they sat down at your table, was family. Was family. It was like the Olive Garden. It was just, when you sat down there, you were family. In fact, so much so, and I've said this like a couple weeks in a row, but let me just do this all the way through this table rant. If someone came in and they wanted to do harm to your guests, so if someone came in, as we all deal with, someone comes in, your guest is there, and they want to hurt them, you were honor bound to protect them to the point of death. Your death, not theirs. Basically, this table 
was a serious, serious thing. As you entered this, it was not just symbolic, it was actually real, it was totally practical. You were family, you were loved, you were protected. And so Jesus would use that opportunity to share things that you would probably never bring up in any other capacity. So the, the reason we're saying nothing's off the table is because Jesus would talk about things at the table that your mother would slap you and go, that's not table talk, we don't talk about that here. Jesus was so good at bringing up the stuff that like the Pharisees wouldn't talk about, that the sinners and the tax collectors wouldn't talk about. It was either or. Thank you, Katie, that thing is so loud. Um, he was so good at talking about what matters most in a space that he was fully protected. And so whether it was with a Pharisee, who was kind of the relig religious leader of the day, or it was with a sinner or a tax collector, which is, you know, its own thing, everyone respected that space, and they would listen to each other. And so in this series, what I want to do is create this whole thing as a table. We want to respect this space. And so what we did is we asked you guys to ask questions. So I, I got a box full of uh, questions. Some of them were really intense, but like we said, nothing's off the table. So my job, like a lot of times when we do this like question asking thing in church, the pastor will pick up like the one that says like John 3.16 and go like, oh, how convenient this question came up and then go like, I can't believe my church is asking this. Um, what we're gonna do is the real, real, real stuff in that box and we're not going to shy away from what's going on. This morning, uh, we're covering what salvation looks like because there were questions, and forgive me, this is why we're having breakfast burritos because this is gonna get real heavy for a second. We had questions about infant deaths. We had questions about people of other faiths. Where do they go when they die? We had people about disabilities. Like if you are severely disabled and you physically can't hear the message, how can you be saved? Right? Let that sink in for a second. What I want to do this morning is take us through this scary religious word called salvation and actually talk about what Jesus talked about when he talked about salvation. Who's in and who's out? And we're going to learn that who's in and who's out is not a proper way to frame it, and it's never a proper way to frame it. Um, and here at Resonate especially, it's never a proper way to frame it. So uh, as we do that, let me pray for us, um, and we'll talk about salvation and all that scary stuff and, yeah, what it means. Let me pray. God, I'm, I'm so thankful for this space, for these people. Um, so thankful that right after this, we get to just go and hang out with each other and get to know each other all in the, in the sphere of remembering you and remembering that you're with us. Um, I pray this morning as we talk about some, some heavy stuff, some controversial stuff, that uh, you would uh, <laughs> let a spirit of maturity just come upon this space and, uh, and, and create some thinking minds. Because, Lord, uh, we ask you in your hearts, but we know you want our heads as well. So uh, we're going to do this intelligently. We're going to do this thoughtfully. And we thank you uh, that you're a God that allows all of that. Amen. Um, I was a part of a very interesting church plant. So church plant is a word you use in no other business context. Basically, it's like church startup. Um, but uh, I moved to Calabasas when I was about 20 years old. Actually, I was just 20 years old. Um, it was January 1st, 2010. And moved down there. And uh, it, was a, it was a church. I'd met the pastor. We had gone to uh, breakfast together. Actually, we had breakfast burritos together. Uh, and he invited me to come be the worship leader and the youth pastor of this new community that he was starting in Calabasas. And so I moved from the Bay Area down to LA 
uh, and got there, and then he, he told me on the drive to the kind of preview service, which is like the service you use before you actually go into your big service and you start your church, he's like, I don't want to alarm you, um, but there's a family, and they're a celebrity family, and they're all going to be there, and they're probably going to be front row and center. And naturally, 20-year-old uh, me, I was like, who's that? And he goes, well, uh, I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're the Kardashian family. And I hadn't heard of them because it was 2010, and I had only, I, my parents had an elliptical in the garage, and there was a TV there, and like E was sometimes on, and I would see them, and so like that's all I knew of this family. Uh, but the first week I got there, there they were, all the whole family, like just front row and center, and they actually like reserved their spots. There's a whole lot of church we could go into on that, but they reserved their spots, front row, and there they were, and then there were these blinding lights that were hitting me, and so as a worship leader like Omid does, we asked people to stand and sit, and I asked them to stand, and then I asked them to sit, and, uh, and then I had to ask like, people to sit again because I thought one guy was like, not sitting, uh, but it turned out it was Lamar Odom and he was sitting. He was just looked like, tall enough that like, I couldn't see. So uh, this family's there. It's super intimidating, but it's also like, just super weird and wonderful that this family wanted to start a church. So basically, like, the pastor told me, he was like, I, I am not responsible for this. They're the ones that wanted to start this, and this is, you know, inside baseball here, but they basically just said, like, here's, here's a very large chunk of change, just go start it, like, we trust you. And then Brad, uh, who I didn't even know, uh, hired a 20-something to do two roles at a church, which is very wise, like, you should do that all the time. Um, so I got there, and then uh, Kylie and Kendall were 11 and 13, Kylie and Kendall are the youngest girls, for those of you who are not on Instagram, um, and they they were in my youth group. I had to start a youth group from scratch, and so I, I threw out uh, the idea of like, just gathering in a home because we were meeting in a movie theater. It was much like this. Like, we just didn't have a space to meet. And I said, midweek, like, go ask your parents if anyone here wants to uh, start like, something in their home that would be awesome. We, just, we need a host, and I'll come in, I'll do it all, but we just need someone to host. Um, and Kylie came to me and just said, like, we want to do that without asking her parents, because that's the way that works. So <laughs> flash forward two years, and we had done a youth group in their home for two years, and got to know that family, got to know that space. Very intimately, there were times I would walk in, and they'd say, you can't come in right now. We're filming. There were times that were like, you can come in right now. They're in the middle of an argument. It'd be great if the youth pastor walked in. And I didn't want any of it. I didn't want to be in the show. I just So in their garage, they were given free stuff all the time. If they just tweet about something, it was like free. There it is. Uh, in their garage, they had these Segways. And this is when a Segway was new. Uh, not a bird scooter, but just the Segway. And I wanted to ride the Segway, and they let me ride the Segway. And then I had this brilliant thought where I was like, OK, I'm never going to ask for anything in the whole world, but if I, if I can just lob this one out there, I'm going to swing big. Basically, what I pitched to Kylie was, every episode, I will just roll by in the background on a Segway, just nonchalant, and no one will ever talk about it. So that down the line, the internet will go crazy, and they'll go, every episode, have you noticed that this guy rides by on a Segway like this? That was my whole plan. But. They're a wonderful family, and it was wonderful to be there. But the, the craziest thing that ever happened, uh, we, we dropped cupcakes in their pool. Uh, we ruined their pool filter one time. We had to ask their parents. I had to hop a fence. There's just a, a bunch of wonderful stories that happened. And I think it really like seasoned me to do this, because we were just basically starting a little church in, uh, in the backyard of these people's homes. Um, but we actually did the same thing that I did here. And it was the first time I had ever done it. Uh, I asked them all to write questions, kind of like, what you do in school, like anonymously, just what are, what are your questions on faith? What are your questions on Jesus? Like, 
And being a 20-year-old with no seminary education, that was a very bold thing to do. But I said, listen, I don't have the answers, but we're going to walk through it together. And I'll seek advice on this, and I'll seek wisdom. We're going to pull this stuff apart together. But I really want to know what you're curious about. And so they put all of these questions in, and I said, please do this totally anonymously. We don't want to know who you are, because these questions could be intense. They could be scary. Just, just put your questions in. And everyone did, and there were some amazing questions in there. But uh, Kylie, in typical Kylie fashion, did not do it anonymously. She actually signed hers. She autographed it. Uh, but it was a profound question. And basically, that question was uh, John 3.16. And John 3.16 looks like this. See that slide, Bobby? This is the most famous Bible verse you'll ever encounter, uh, at least from the New Testament. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So this was written on a post. Oh, no, sorry, Bobby. Just there. Um, this was written on a post-it note. But instead of a period, and then right here in giant letters, written Kylie, uh, instead of a period, there was a question mark. And then under world, she had underlined that. Under God, she had underlined that. And under son, she had underlined that. And under believes, she had underlined that. She was 11 years old. She's almost a billionaire at this point. Makes sense. But I just thought for a second, oh my God. Like looking at that, and realizing that we spurt this verse out there like nobody's business. This is kind of the go-to. What does it all mean, right? But I think we should always approach this verse with a question mark rather than a period. It's not obvious. It's not a good way to sum it up. It's difficult to understand. There's a lot to unpack. And there's context behind it. We often quote this verse, but our, for our church, our actual, like, church verse, the thing that guides us is John 3.17. And John 3.17 is added onto this, and it looks like this. Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And it starts right here at 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now, if I was going to pull a Kylie and underline some stuff, the things that I would underline are the words God, send, and condemn. Not to condemn. We often say John 3.16 like it's this big, huge thing. But with John 3.16 comes this, okay, all right, now, so you know this. So now you got to do the password. And once you do the password, you let them into your heart, you're good. Life insurance, fire insurance, you're saved, right? But the question is, and the question that we're all asking, the questions that I got in here were not about life insurance, right? There's larger questions about salvation. What am I getting saved from? Why does it even matter? What is this? Why is it necessary? And those are really good and profound questions. And in fact, Jesus has asked these questions all the time. Jesus has asked over 600 questions in the New Testament. 600 questions. And a vast majority of those questions all have to do with what do I do to get X? What must I do to be saved to get into heaven, to do all this stuff? Is there an afterlife? And the context of that is really huge because like, unlike us, this is a very, like, in this space, we're not worried for our lives generally, like minute to minute, hour to hour. But in that ancient time, those people were literally worried about what happens tomorrow. Will I eat tomorrow? Will my child make it? 
Will I make it? Will my relative be okay? There were real deal mortal consequences. And so the questions that were poised to him were often about like, well, what happens after this? Because we're sitting in a space here that like, honestly, it's so hard. And I don't, I don't know how to wrestle with it. I hope there's something more. And Jesus would eloquently answer those questions about what happens next and about heaven and about like what, what's to come. But he would always turn it back around to what's right here and right now. And the metaphors that he would use were not lofty. They were not crazy. They were not like there's going to be this, this pearly gate in the sky with clouds and this guy with a big white beard and he's going to come and he's going to greet you. They were always metaphors. When he described heaven, he would describe things like banquets, weddings, tables, feasts. And the weirdest part about that is when he would describe them that way, he was often at one. When he would talk about heaven, he would talk about the very place that he was sitting, and he would say, it's just like this. It's just like this. And not it's just like this, but it starts right here. Because again, when we're talking about the table and what that actually meant, what better place to discuss who's in and who's out than the place that defines where you belong, that the place that makes you family? What better spot than that to describe this who's in who's out language. That's, he's a terrific guy. We should think about following him. He's, he's pretty good. Um, so to talk about this, we're going we're gonna to do uh, a little section on bread. We're going to do Jesus' host. Uh, we're going to talk about an entire chapter of the Bible, because last week we just talked about a single letter in the Bible, so this is the only place you can come where we do letters and chapters. We've carved out three hours for this. Don't worry about it. Um, no, we'll get to the breakfast burritos. Uh, and then we're going to talk about belonging. Um, but the reason Jesus actually talked about this stuff at a table was for real deal issues. Like these people were not just worried about their mortality. They were what you call substantiary farmers, the most of them. So other people were like merchants and stuff like that. But like in this period in history, you were literally farming for what you would put on the table the next day. Or you were selling things and working and hustling and just working, 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 working for what you would have the next day. So the mealtime, and this is often when Jesus was there, was actually this moment of pause and this moment of reflection, and it could be a moment of extreme anxiety, knowing, oh gosh, we don't have stuff for dinner tomorrow. I did not make the money I needed to, or I did not farm the way I needed to, and we're, we're going to be hungry tomorrow, so we might as well enjoy this tonight. Or it would be a moment of great gratitude where you would go, we did it, we've got it, we're good, let's celebrate tonight, because tomorrow is taken care of. But that was always a gamble. It's a 50-50 chance that you'd be under extreme anxiety. We know that. It's Sunday. At about 4 o'clock today, you're going to be thinking, work, right? Like, you're going to understand that there's stuff coming tomorrow that's going to hurt. So these people were literally fighting for food. They were hungry. So the reason Jesus would use these phrases, like, I'm the bread of life, or anyone who is thirsty, come to me, were because these people were literally hungry and thirsty. They did not have access to what we have right now. They were dealing with day-to-day living. They were hungry. And they were hungry because they were being taxed three times. So in that day, you would be taxed by Rome, which was the overarching empire, and then Herod, which was the little local government that answered to Rome. And then if you were a good Jewish person, which a lot of these people were pious and they would do, they would also pay their tithe to the temple, which would be an additional 10%. So basically they were taxed into oblivion. It wasn't their fault. They were trying so hard. 
So when Jesus talks about money and he talks about food and we're wondering why the heck does he talk about money and food so much, it's because that's literally what these people are worried about all the time. And mostly that's centered around bread. Let me go on a quick bread rant because bread is a miracle. Do you know what it takes to make bread? I learned it this week because I bought a pizza oven. Bobby, do we have that, um, do we have that picture? So I don't know if you can see this. Um, my wife got very angry at me. We did a wedding uh, last week, and they gave me a little chunk of change, and I wanted to do something special with it. And so Chelsea and I make this list every single year uh, on New Year's where we kind of pray out our, the things we need for that year, the things we hope for for that year. And then we make an extra list, which is like just the crazy list, like the stuff that like, I don't know, like we've put things like pizza ovens on it, right? Like just like the stuff that we're shooting for the moon, but we might as well pray for, who knows, maybe God will drop it out of the sky. Um, and in this case, the pizza oven has made that list three years in a row, and finally I just went, we're gonna do it. So this bad boy gets up to 900 degrees and it's on our tiny wooden balcony. If I burn the entire place down, you'll know who to look for. Uh, but it cooks bread inside of it, so I looked up what it takes to make bread, and literally it's yeast, water, oil, salt flour. That's it. Five ingredients. And I thought this would be a really difficult thing to do. No, it turns out you just mix those things together and you let it just sit there. It does its own thing for like an hour, two hours, overnight if you want to, and then you just place it in an oven and it does its own thing. It is a miracle. It is a food source. We should all be eating more. This is not a gluten-free message. I'm sorry. We're going to talk a lot about bread. We should be eating more bread, right? Bread actually tells a story. We're going to get so nerdy on this. I can't believe we're doing this. Bread tells a story of the people that create it. If you look, we have, in Germany, you have rice. In India, you've got naan that's cooked in big tandoori ovens. In Mexico, you have flour and corn tortillas, which is arguably the best kind of bread. We can get into that later. And then here, we have Wonder Bread. So we should really take pause and say, what story are we telling that our bread is white, blanched, sweet, and unflavorful? But bread was so vital in this day that the old rabbis used to call a unit of bread or a loaf of bread a staff of bread, which basically meant like a staff of bread meant bread was vital to walk. Bread was essential to keep you moving. It was the unit of life that actually keeps you going. So when Jesus says stuff like, I am the bread of life, he's not speaking high pie in the sky, like trying to figure this out. He's saying, no, I am the thing is essential for you to walk. I'm the staff. I will be your guide. And even more so, when you get into the Lord's Prayer, what's the first line? Or not the first line, but what's the line in there is, give us this day our daily bread. And that's a radical line if you think about what they were worried about because they were worried about the next day, right? Jesus is like, no, no, no. When you pray, pray for this day. Pray for what you're sitting in right now. Our daily bread. Bread. Bread was vital, absolutely vital to existence, to life. And Jesus exhibited that at the table and just in his life. Even more so, bread was the first thing that you'd be handed if you walked into a home. Hospitality was defined in a couple ways. You would be entered into a home. You would be clean so they would wash your feet, which was a sign of deep respect and intimacy. And it would say, like, we're going to get close here because if you've ever dealt with someone's feet, Whew, Lordy, you're going to get to know them very well, very quickly. You would wash their feet, and then the host would bring out bread. Bread. A staff of bread. And being the host, they would break that bread, because that signified that they were the host and that they were providing. And then they would hand the guest 
bread, sustenance. So you're cleaning them, you're handing them bread, and then a meal would happen where you would bring out all the stuff. So bread was this radical form of hospitality. It signified that as you walked into a home, we're gonna care for you on the basic level of life. We're gonna give you what you need to sustain yourself. And Jesus did this radically. Jesus has this really awkward quirk of like never owning a home, but always acting like a host. So he's the type of guy that would walk into the room and would just open up your fridge and start rummaging through stuff. We all have that friend, right? That was Jesus. He would come into a space and where he wasn't supposed to be host, he would become the host. Think of that in terms of God, right? In terms of our own life and our own heart. When he comes in here, he's not supposed to be the host, but he becomes the host. What's ours becomes his, and he is the guy. So Jesus would do things like he would walk in and he would wash the disciples' feet. That's what the host is supposed to do. Or even at the Lord's Supper, he would break the bread. That's what the host is supposed to do. His first miracle was turning water into wine. It wasn't his wedding. That's what the host is supposed to do. Everything Jesus does changes the role from guest to host and makes himself the host. And this goes so, so deep into what we should be focused on as a church and in Christianity. Halfway through Mark, Mark 6, there are four movements of hospitality. That means that there are 15 chapters in Mark. Mark 6 is all to do with hospitality, which means that one sixteenth of Mark is completely devoted to hospitality. So we have to pay attention to how we're being hospitable and especially how God is hospitable. So Jesus wants to teach his disciples this whole hospitality thing. So how does he do it? We read this passage all the time, um, but do we have the uh, sends out the 12 message? Oh, no, that's the key. Oh, I'm sorry, I missed that part. We'll skip that. We can do it another week. Um, These were his instructions as he sends out his disciples, and they go. And they go without any real training. This is Mark 6. There's still a bunch of chapters to come. Why is he sending them out so early? When he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom, which was this thing that he was just not shut up about at a dinner table, he sent them out this way. It says, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey. And I should mention that he sends them out into other people's homes. So he says, go travel, go to other people's places, go live with them, go explore their lives, go learn them, be good students of who they are. Uh, But these were his instructions as they went. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, pay attention to that, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Is there another? uh, There we are. Uh, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Can we go to that last slide, Bobby? The, the previous one? Sorry, I'm asking a lot. Um, pay attention. Why Mark, the writer, the author, really does not have much concern for what happens when these disciples actually arrive at the home. There's no instruction on what to do when you get there, what to say, what prayer to pray, what thing to tell them. All that he's concerned about is what to take with you, and not even that, but what not to take with you. You're not supposed to take bread, which would mean you'd have to be completely reliant on the hospitality of someone else. You're not supposed to take money. You have to be completely reliant on the hospitality of someone else. You're not even supposed to take a change of clothes to the point that like, when you arrive, you are completely a guest in the most vulnerable way possible. 
Now pay attention to this, and I've said this before in this community. I think the church in general has tried to take on the role of host. You come to us, we invite you in, we take care of you, rather than the role of vulnerable guest in our communities, of going to places and searching out what really, what life is doing, how these people are living, what's happening. And I think as a result of that, we're seeing a decline in churches all around America because we're not paying enough attention to how to be a guest, how to be a vulnerable guest, and how to accommodate a host and take in hospitality. Because God is supposed to be the host, not us. That's a quick church rant. Get back on it. But basically, this is the way that Jesus designed it. He wants you to study how to be a good guest. Because once you know how to be a good guest, you're going to be a better host. You're paying attention to your needs. Like, what when I walked in here, like when they offered me that glass of water or when they washed my feet or, or when they didn't, all of these things were stuff that they were paying attention to. And so when they come back, they'd be better for it. And Jesus would be able to shape them in a better way. So in Mark 6, they send them out. And then right after that, we have this little spurt where John the Baptist gets his head cut off, which is classic Bible stuff. And then the next chunk of scripture and it says, once the, once the disciples had come back, is this really interesting moment where Jesus turns a city into a table. And we're going to go through this. We're going to unpack it all the way. It's a little bit lengthy chunk of scripture, but um, we'll just kind of chip away at it as we go. Um, the disciples have just arrived. They're in a remote place. This crowd, as Jesus often had, was just following them. There are about 5,000 people in attendance. And they're all there. And the sun is going down. And they're hungry. And so Jesus looks around, and remember, the disciples have just come back from this whole, like, learn how to be a guest, I've sent you out, what have you learned kind of moment, and now they're coming back to this, and watch what happens in the timing here. When Jesus arrived and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We'll stop right there for one second. Sheep without a shepherd is a biblical term that comes up a bunch in the Psalms and a bunch in the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Joshua, and basically sheep without a shepherd always signified they're an army without a general. They're an army without a general. They're an army that has no one to lead them. So pay attention to this. Jesus doesn't come up on arms, but it's saying, the Bible is saying, this is an army ready to go, 5,000 people. What's he going to do with it? So then he began to teach them many things. So instead of giving them swords, he began to teach them. He began to talk. He began to talk about this annoying thing called the kingdom, and he would not stop talking about it to the point that they couldn't go home. So when Jesus, I'm sorry, and then the next slide. Uh, late in the day, his disciples came to him and said, this is an isolated place and it's already late in the day. Send them away so that we can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy something to eat for themselves. So pay attention to this. They knew the rules of hospitality. They knew that these people were their guests and they were honor bound to feed them. But their major concern is that Oh, no. Like, they knew if they send them out, there's 5,000 people. In this rural society, a city would encompass 3,000 people. Like, Jerusalem was huge, but these outlying cities would only be about 3,000 people max. There is no way that a single town could have fed this group. So what the disciples are saying is, like, basically, if we let them go and let them on their own, like, it's not our problem anymore. So we should probably just send them out. And watch what Jesus says here. He replied, you give them something to eat, which is a very strong Jesus move. You give them something to eat. Don't push this problem on someone else. But they said to him, should we go off and buy bread with almost eight months pay? They're, they're, they're worried about spending money on the needy and the poor. 
so they didn't learn a lot on their trip, and give it to them to eat. He said to them, how much bread do you have? Take a look. After checking, they said five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, I grew up reading this text or in Sunday school hearing this text, and you just kind of brush right by that, right? Like, of course, they're, they're, they have bread. They're just back from a trip on which Jesus gave explicit instruction. And what was one of those explicit instructions? Do not bring bread. And they've just come back from this trip, and what do they have? Five loaves of bread. So basically, this is an uh uh-oh moment for the disciples where Jesus catches them (laughs) red-handed. He goes, how many loaves of bread do you have? And they open up a sack, and they're like, five? And he's like, is that all? And they go, two fish? So they have an adequate amount of food to feed themselves, and they took that with them. That's so important. They took that with them. So Jesus doesn't say anything about that. He just takes the existing feast that they have with them, and he directed the disciples and sat them all, people in groups, as though they were having a banquet on the green grass. This is all loaded with meeting, but basically, they're having a banquet. All of a sudden, Jesus is setting the table. Green, whenever it comes up in scripture, is this thing of life. It's something new. It's something that's springing forth. So he sets them on the green grass. Something new is going to happen here. And this echoes to Moses. The five and the two are like just explosive with meaning. Moses had, what, five books that he wrote in the Bible, which are the Torah, and then he had two tablets in which he wrote the Ten Commandments. They've got five loaves, two fish. Moses turns two tablets into five books of Scripture. Jesus is about to turn five loaves and two fish into this massive feast for everyone. So when he puts them on the green grass, it's an echo back to Moses, who also separated them into groups of 50s and 100s. So we're getting this thing that is just loaded with meaning for the ancient reader and that we don't really understand. But listen, this is huge stuff. It's going like the first time this happened, there was liberation. Now there's going to be liberation even further. When it says green grass, it's sort of a wink to us to go like, pay attention to what's going on here. So he sits them down on the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven and blessed them and broke the loaves into pieces and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. Everyone ate until they were full. They filled, the, they filled 12 baskets with the leftover pieces of bread and fish. About 5,000 had eaten. So basically, there's 12, there's 12 disciples. They just picked up a basket each of food as Jesus' way of saying, like, good job, guys. (laughs) Pay attention here. Now you each have a basket. So that's one way to look at this miracle, right? This miracle that, that he creates a huge feast. And that's a beautiful way to look at this because those people were genuinely hungry and he was meeting a need. But there's another way to look at this, which is the practical way, which for a lot of us that are like, how do these miracles thing exist? This might be a helpful like little doorway in. There's nothing in here that points to something miraculous or magical. The miracle is that everyone was satisfied. The miracle is that everyone was satisfied. He could have just broken it up into tiny pieces, but because he did that and he fed these people, they were satisfied. I think that speaks to a whole lot. And before he breaks the bread and before he divides the fish, what does he do? He gives thanks. That's a picture of God giving thanks for something he doesn't even need to be thankful for. This is a miracle out of thankfulness 
out of gratitude, out of grace, and that leads to people being satisfied. There's a link there. Gratification, thankfulness somehow is linked with us being satisfied. The disciples are like, how are we going to pay for this? They were looking for market strategies to get these people fed. And what Jesus does is he takes the available resources that are right there, divides them among them, and points to it and says, what you have is always going to be enough. Stop trying to solve this problem with lofty ideas and money. That's not what you need. What you need is to solve this problem with people, real people, in front of you right here, right now. And he does that with 5,000 people, and he sets the table, and basically this whole thing that's bigger than a city becomes the table. And here's the most important part about that and how it links into salvation. Right before that, where I mentioned John the Baptist and the whole beheading business, there's another banquet story right before this story. And it has to do with a guy named Herod, who is, again, we spoke about him at the beginning, who is like the local government dude. And he's throwing this drunken, like, bash banquet in which his daughter dances for a group of people, and he's so pleased with the dance that he literally looks at her and he says, whatever you want, ask for it right now. Because when you get dad drunk, that's the way you can do it. So he asks, he says, whatever you want, you ask for it now up to half my kingdom. The intoxication, when, when scholars look at this, they can tell that Herod is intoxicated because he says, up to half my kingdom, and he wasn't a king. So basically, he said, you can have up to half my kingdom, but what he meant is, like, I'm a governor of a small province. I'll give you half of whatever that means. And he didn't even really have the authority to do that because Rome would have shut him down. So this is an empty, drunken promise. But the most important part of that scripture is not the fact that John the Baptist is beheaded. It's in this really subtle little power move play. It says that the daughter went back to ask her mother for advice on what she should ask. And the mother said, ask for the head of John the Baptist because she's weird and we can get into that at a different time. But basically, there are two banquets happening. One is where the men are in this one room and they're filled with soldiers and government people, the very people that are responsible for this other group that Jesus is hanging out with, they're hungry. They're responsible for that hunger just having a feast. And the daughter has to leave that banquet and go to a separate, the way that these feasts would work in Greek society and in Roman society was there'd be one table for the men and then in a separate room there'd be a lesser table for the women. So the daughter had to leave that banquet and go into another room, sit at a different table, and ask her mother how to do this. Think about that juxtaposition. There's a reason those two are right next to each other. We have one picture of a banquet where Jesus turns a city into a table, and we have another version of a banquet that includes drunkenness, murder, and two separate class systems in which one person has to be over here and one person has to be over here. The most radical thing in the text that we just read is it does not read there were 5,000 men that were fed. It says there were 5,000 people. 5,000 people. And you have to understand how radical that is for that time. When they would do a census in that society, when you were counted, you were counted as a man. So when we see numbers from that society and we see that like this many thousand people were living here, this many thousand people were living here, they were only counting the men, they were not counting the women, and they were not counting the children. As if to say your, your presence doesn't even count. But in this radical book written 2,000 years ago, they make a point to say people, not men, people. 
this book that we've used to keep people out and create boundary lines and say who's in and who's out and you can be saved but you can't, this book 2,000 years ago chooses to save people. That's huge stuff. When we're asking questions about who can and who can't and what this looks like and what that looks like, we're engaging in a conversation that is wasting our time. If I could quote Jesus here, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. In Jesus' banquet, everyone belongs simply because they're there. Not because of what they've earned, not because of who they are, but because they're hungry and they're needy and they're in that place and Jesus chooses to feed them right then and there. And that is a beautiful, beautiful picture of the kingdom. It's a beautiful picture of belonging. You're not a soldier. You're not a government official. You're just a person and you're here and that makes you important. There's a difference between accepting people and actually asking people to belong. When you belong somewhere and you belong in this space, when you belong somewhere, you are genuinely missed when you're not here. When you're not here, I miss you guys. You belong here, and that's what the church needs to push, is not who you are, what you believe in, who you love, whatever that is. It does not matter. The most important thing is that you are a son daughter of Christ, of God, and you're loved completely, and you don't need to do anything to earn that. You don't need to do anything to earn that. That's the whole Jesus way, and that's exciting. And the other stuff can get in the way, and the other stuff is the stuff that we're like, I don't want to deal with church and religion and all this junk, because what, what is it even for? What does it even mean? No, salvation's for you, and you don't have to do anything for it. You didn't do anything for it. You're already at the table. And that's why here we make a point to make sure you understand that everyone is welcome at this table and you're not just accepted, you absolutely belong. Absolutely belong. The very first day that I took this job and I preached my first message, I said that and I had to stop and I nearly cried. Because this is a space that has kept people out and there's so many rules involved with it, and you can't come to the table if you're not this, and you can't do that if you're not this, or if you have to go to a... No. This feast, as Jesus breaks the bread and becomes a host in a place he's not even supposed to be a host for, is for everyone. He's breaking the rules to show you there are not rules when it comes to my love for you and my salvation. It crosses the line. So we're going to experience this table this morning. You can break off a giant piece of challah because that's our church's story. And you can dip it in the cup, which is the blood poured out for you. And you can experience what God is doing for you in this midst. And we can remember him. So what I'd love for us to do, if we could stand, I'm just going to pray for us. And then the front row can come down. Uh, we can begin. Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for your table. I'm grateful for your... Your love. Thank you for making us people that understand that we're called to give them something to eat, that we're called to create meaningful, holy, set-apart experiences with human beings on a daily basis, that everyone we encounter is holy and that we should treat them as such. I'm just so thankful for this community. I'm thankful that you brought us together and that we have the opportunity to hang out after this in a much cooler space than we are in right now and, and get to know each other.